Uh, good evening. We are back in 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 1. We'll be looking at verses 4 to 9 this evening. Um, last week we started this Thursday night Bible study looking at 1 Corinthians and Paul weaved into his in introductory words some themes that he'll go on to develop and expound as the letter unfolds. Today, in place of the customary routine declaration of praise to the gods of ancient Greece and Rome, with which most letters of the era began, instead Paul offers a word of thanksgiving to the one true living God, which is far from routine. We saw last time that all was not well with the various congregations of the Corinthian church. And as our study will show us, there are problems of split, of split, there are splits, there is schism, there is division, and there is not all is well amongst these churches. Christians were suing each other in the secular courts, dishonouring the name of Jesus in doing so. There was sexual immorality of such perversion that even the proverbially de debauched pagans of Corinth would not name the offences that were plaguing the Christians in their own city. But for all their immorality, nevertheless, they still found time to practice spiritual snobbery and elitism claiming that their unique giftedness made them the elite of the church. So there was immorality, there was schisms, and then there was theological confusion. Anarchic worship, a general failure of love. And behind all of that, giving force and power, fueling all their confusion, stands an even deeper confusion about how the Corinthian believers should relate to the culture of the day, the world around them, the culture out of which they had been converted and in which they still lived every day. The value system, the cultural expectations, the social, the social norms, the language and the rhetoric of the world still had a huge pull on them and it was wreaking havoc in their lives and in their churches. Paul clearly had a great deal to rebuke and to challenge and to exhort the Corinthians about, which is why it is fascinating, striking to see that he doesn't begin there in verse four. He doesn't begin with a word of rebuke, but rather he thanks God for them. I suppose you would have thought that even the Corinthian leadership would have been bracing themselves for a, a bit of a stern dressing down from the apostle. You know, you can imagine them getting together, the elders getting together. There's a letter from the apostle Paul, which has to be read. Surely they must have been thinking we've had our fun, the holiday's over. How disarming it must have been, therefore, to hear Paul begin, not with devastating, well-deserved critique, or a stinging word, but rather offering an extended, thoughtful, specific word of thanksgiving to God, betraying his deep 
love and affection for the Corinthians, all their mess, all their mess notwithstanding. Paul feels deep lasting gratitude to God for these believers among whom he's invested a year and a half of his preaching and teaching and discipleship ministry. Criticism is easy. But cultivating a thankful, grateful heart for the people of God, cultivating a thankful heart for your church, is the convicting, searching example that Paul sets before us. Are you thankful? Or do you have a critical and complaining spirit that betrays a lovelessness in there? That makes you more like the Corinthians than like Paul? Paul begins by giving thanks for the evident work of grace that he sees in their lives. And as he does so in this great prayer, these six verses, verses um, four through to nine, um, he provides for us, I think that's five, isn't it? He provides for us what we might call a spiritual biography of the Corinthian Christians. He tells us some of their stories. You know, I love to read I love to read, you know, full stop, but I love to read biographies, especially some of the heroes of the Christian faith. And you see all kinds of illustrations, concrete, real, historical examples of what grace has done in their lives and through them in the lives of other people. It encourages me what God might do in my life and through me and others' lives, which is precisely what Paul intends to happen as we read about the Corinthian spiritual biography. He wants to show us, Paul wants to show us what grace has done in their lives, that we might be encouraged with the hope of what grace might yet do in our own. So let's read these, these one, two, three, these six verses, sorry, these six verses, verses four to nine, one Corinthians one, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's biography spiritually of the Corinthian believers. This is what grace has done in them, and is doing in them. This is what grace may yet be doing or still do among us. As we look over these six verses, I want to highlight four aspects in particular of the Christian life that Paul celebrates here in, in the Corinthians. First of all, see that the Christian life is a fundamentally and supremely Christ-centered life. And as you read these six verses, you heard it, didn't you? I, I certainly was aware of it again, just reading it just now. The name of Christ mentioned almost in every verse. It is everywhere. Verse 4, the grace of God is given to the Corinthians in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, they're enriched in every way in him. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Verse 7, they live their lives as they wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life is Christ-centred, firstly. That's the first point. The prayer is saturated with Jesus. It's a Christ-centred prayer. Because as Paul thanks God for the Corinthians, he sees they're living a Christ-centred life. 
The Christian life is a Christ-centred life. In particular, notice the bookends in verse 4 and verse 9, both of which give special emphasis to the believer's union with Jesus. We are in Christ, verse 4. The grace of Christ God is given in Christ Jesus. The grace of God is the disposition and the stance, the orientation of the heart of God toward us when we're in Jesus Christ, when we're brought into personal union with his son. He is filled with grace toward us. Or look at the other bookend of the passage, verse 9, the same emphasis in different language. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son. And that word means participation, sharing, communion of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's irresistible call in the Holy Spirit empowered preaching of the gospel brought us out of darkness into his marvellous light, from death to life, from being men and women in Adam to being men and women united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there we have fellowship, we have communion with him. To be a Christian at all means to be a man or a woman in Christ. And everything else in our whole Christian life, as Paul gives us here, this brief summary of the Corinthians life, everything else is centred on or is in some way or another an aspect or a celebration of our connection, our union with Jesus. The grace that we receive at the beginning and the grace we continue to receive every step forward we receive in Christ. The word of God, the testimony that is confirmed among us, that sustains and strengthens and nourishes us, is a testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that for which we look for and long for, the consummation of all things, our final destiny is the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a therapeutic age like ours, that always turns the attention inward, it is really good to be reminded, isn't it, that the Christian life is centred not on me, but elsewhere, not on me, but on the Saviour. Paul directs our gaze up and away to Jesus. We are in him. The testimony is all about him. We wait for him. Maybe you come to church and you have missed this. Maybe you've been looking for comfort and healing, for personal wholeness, for human companionship. Maybe church for you is about a community, building a community. And I pray you'll find those things. But hear me carefully, if that is all you're looking for, you're not yet a Christian. Christians, whatever they find in the church, have found something far more satisfying in Christ. A Christian is someone in Christ. He is all in all to us. So Paul's prayer here directs our attention to Jesus. He would ask you the supremely important, urgent, vital question, are you in Christ? Does Jesus have a hold on you? That's the vital question we must first answer. The Christian life is oriented toward Jesus. It is in Christ. We're waiting for him to come again. It is Christ-centered. Secondly, 
the Christian life is a grace-enriched life. The Christian life is a Christ-centered life. The Christian life is a grace-enriched life. Take out the little parenthesis, the little aside that Paul makes in verse 6 just for a moment and then read verses 4, 5 and 7 together. The grace of God was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. The grace of God that was given them in Christ has a particular result that Paul wants to emphasise here. It has produced in them gifts, spiritual gifts, especially in the areas of speech and knowledge. And these are two rich blessings that the Lord has lavished upon them in his grace. They love to speak about truth. They love to know the truth. Now, these are two distinctives that will become problem areas for the Corinthians. It will get them into some trouble. They quickly become imbalanced, infected with the values of their old paganism that emphasised and loved rhetoric and secret knowledge. They began using their gifts for personal prestige and self-promotion, claiming their unique gifts made them special, allowing them to denigrate others. And Paul, as we will see, will have to deal with that firmly. But now he gives thanks that whatever abuses there may be in Corinth, there nevertheless was spiritual reality and God was enriching the life of the churches in the city through these gifts of grace. To be a Christian is to live enriched by the grace of God, to live in the grip of grace. The two words, gift and grace, are from the same Greek root. The word grace is charis and the word gift is charismita. Gifts are gifts of grace. You know, sometimes we flatter one another about talking about your marvellous gifts and we swirl and strut in pride because we are so gifted. But understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about spiritual gifts. He's talking about the donations of grace so that there may be no boasting except in God who has given them. Isn't that wonderful? Not to make much of us, but as we use them for the good of the church, much is made of him. The Christian life is a grace-enriched life. He gives us the grace we need and the gifts he requires in order for the church to be equipped for ministry and service, that we might be edified and encouraged and comforted and pointed back and back and back again and again and again. Not to some buffoon in a pulpit, but to Christ, who is the burden of Scripture and the greatest need of our hearts. The Christian life is Christ-centred. The Christian life is grace-enriched. Thirdly, the Christian life is a word-sustained life. The Christian life is a word-sustained life. Come back to that little aside that I took out just a few moments ago in verse 6. In the midst of this talk about spiritual gifts, Paul says that God's enriching grace that made the Corinthians abound in these gifts of speech and knowledge worked in their lives, verse 6, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among them. The testimony about Christ is another way of talking about the faithful ministry of the word. The Christ-focused message proclaimed from scripture, he says, was confirmed among you. And as that was, as, that, as, that, as it was confirmed, then grace 
did amazing things, equipping for service, enriching lives. It's as the word of God has its way among us. The testimony about Christ penetrates and takes root in our hearts. Then grace enriches and equips us with everything good for doing his will. Christian faithfulness and Christian fruitfulness are together the product of the ministry of the word. The testimony about Christ being confirmed among us. And that's a point that's driven home a little further when you notice the word confirmed in verse 6 and the word sustain in verse 8 which are the same words in Greek. In verse 8, we have a marvellous promise that God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God will do it. He will sustain and transform and remake us till we shine at the last day with a completed reflection of the character of Jesus. Praise God, what a promise. But how will he do it? How will we get there? How is he going to sustain us? The word sustain and confirm are the same word. They both describe the effect of the word of God in our hearts. He will do it. He will sustain us as the word is confirmed among us, as the testimony about Jesus grips our hearts, fills our horizons, motivates our service. It's as the word of God gets a hold. Do you love your, the Bible? Do you, do you love the word? Do you love hearing it proclaimed? Please don't neglect the word. It is as the word has its way that God will preserve, protect, perfect your life and his church. That's why in Roman Catholicism, the focus of the worship service is the mass. In charismatic churches, the focus is on personal experience. But in reformed churches, the focus is on the word. The emphasis of Holy Scripture. God is at work by his word. God is sustaining you to the end by the word. Praise God for the word. Would you pray for the preaching of the word, that God would rend the heavens and come down and own the ministry of his word in a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and in power. That he would awaken in us an appetite for the word that the testimony of Jesus would be confirmed among us. And as it is, like the Corinthians, we might abound and be enriched by grace in Christ for gifts of speech and knowledge that we might lack nothing, but might serve him for his glory and praise. What might God do by his word among us if we gave ourselves to pleading with him to own and bless the scriptures in our hearts, in our church, in our town, in our nation. And fourthly, the Christian life is a future-oriented life. The Christian life is Christ-centred, grace-enriched, word-sustained and future-in-direction. The particular future in mind is not tomorrow or two years hence. It is the final horizon line of history. Look at verse 7. Paul is saying God has enriched you by grace in Christ with spiritual gifts. As God's word is at work, he is confirming the word in their hearts. God is doing great things. In verse 8, he's going to sustain them by his word. But what are the Corinthians doing while all this is happening? They're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their eyes are to be fixed on the horizon 
on the finish line. And that is what a Christ-centered heart results in, a heart that is captured by Jesus. However much of him we know here longs for knowing more. That, that, that is part of a Christ-centered heart, that they always long to know more. You can never get enough of Jesus. However much we know of him here longs for the fullness of knowing him hereafter. We can never get enough. We can never see enough, know enough. There's always more to come when he returns in glory. One day, brothers and sisters, the Lordship of Christ will be openly displayed. Every eye will see him, every knee will bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. And the eternal joy will begin face to face with Jesus, reveling in his glory, delighting in his love, adoring him with the church and the angels forever. The here and now is the waiting room this side of eternity. This is not home. When Christ comes, that's home. That's where we're going. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're longing for. Those who by grace have Christ-centred hearts, who live in the grip of that grace, enriched by his grace, whose word is sustaining us and changing us and nourishing us, we are longing for Jesus to come. This world isn't our home. Are you ready to go? Or is this world your home? Do you live waiting for the revealing of Jesus Christ? Or are you living in the past or living for today? When the best is yet to come. Let me ask you, has Christ captured your heart? That's the most important question you'll ever answer. I'm not talking about church. I'm not talking about tradition, routine, religious language. I'm talking about reality. Does Jesus have your heart? Are you in him? Has he captured you so you long for nothing so much as to be with him, to see him, to have more of him? Nothing matters compared to how you answer that question. Are you a man or a woman or a boy or a girl in Christ? If you are, then you live a grace-enriched life. God will give you what you need. What God requires from you, he will give you that you might live for his glory. A grace-enriched life. You will live a word-sustained life. The Bible is not a dead letter. It is not boring. It lives it nourishes. It's like food, a light to your feet, a lamp to your path. You'll hear the voice of King Jesus saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. He will sustain you and one day as you follow him, the skies will split and he will come and you will see him and he will take you to be with him forever. So may the Lord give us grace to be able to answer that question rightly. Am I a man or a woman in Christ? Amen.